0: Hello everybody, Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome
1: to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today, very special guest, occupational therapist, Dr. Emily Piven. Emily, how the heck are you today? I'm good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on and talking about a topic that we have not really dove into too much yet on the podcast. So I'm excited for this because this is new to me as well. And that's really peer-reviewed journals and and academic writing and publishing. Tell us a little bit about your educational journey and how it's kind of led you to where you are today.
2: Well, I started out at the Virginia Commonwealth University the year that it transitioned from the Medical College of... Georgia to Virginia Commonwealth. I absolutely loved everything I did in occupational therapy. I loved school. I loved my dormitory. <laughs> I loved everything, and it was my comfort level. I found out that my basic personality was suited for it, and that I was highly adaptive to my environment. Even took the um, Strong Campbell Occupational Interest Inventory. I don't know if I have ever had that experience. But I took it in the ninth grade, and I scored high in occupational therapy, interior design, and psychologist. So I went path passive occupational therapy, and I spent four summers volunteering when I wasn't in school at a hospital in Baltimore in the rehabilitation department. And I just fell in love with my career. When you fall in love with something, you learn different things. I think you want to spread it. That's kind of how I got started. My second program, well, the first one was a BS in OT. And then the second program was at the Medical College Georgia. And I had a full scholarship and I got my master's in health education that year. It was in 1980. And then I went on to get my doctorate because I really wanted to teach. And my husband had taken me to a place where there was no occupational therapy, to alone teaching occupational therapy at the college. So I started 17 positions in that town and I created 17 jobs for occupational therapists. So I had a little cocoon around me and I hadn't done any publication yet. But when I got to Texas, the department chair said to me, if you'd like to teach, I see you have a degree in teaching, then you're born to have to get a doctorate. Because we're teaching master's level students. So I said, okay, so how high do you want me to jump? And he said, very high. And I said, I'm fine. And I started my first day of teaching and my first day of graduate school for my doctorate. Wow. And, uh, and I just kept going. And um, I was thinking about it today because um, I knew I was going to have this meeting with him. And I think I'd like to tell a story about how I got started. Yeah, please. Right with publishing. In school, I had a paper that I had to write for a class. And so I turned it in my homework assignment into an article at the British Journal of Occupational Therapy. That was my first article. And then most of the things I was doing at that time was uh, conference presentations and proceedings. So a lot of articles that I had written conference. I found out quickly that that wasn't the way to go because I needed to publish a paper in a journal. So I started thinking about journal writing. I did a class at an international conference in Trinidad, Tobago, which was a really small area where they did not have a school yet, and the school came after I was there, and it's thriving now. We have a lot of occupational therapists in that area. But the sallow who was supposed to do an institute in that meeting was Franklin Stein, and he and his wife showed up at three o'clock in the morning uh, the night before. And his wife was really sick; she had a hundred and three fever. And I had brought all of my nutrients with, me, and I started knocking on doors at three o'clock in the morning. Who has vitamin C? <laughs> That's, who has this? Who has that? And so by I guess probably around 10 o'clock that day, she was fine. She was broke. She felt fine for the rest of the conference and she spent time drawing pictures at the conference. She was an artist and she was an OT. And so my first quest was that I, write, I do a special edition on complimentary and alternative medicine for the Occupational Therapy International Journal. And that's what I did. And it took about a year or two. Get all the articles you and submitted decided you know deciding who would get published and so forth and then franklin and i did a uh editorial for the journal it was easy after that um it was fun so that was published and then i just started publishing in journals yeah
1: yeah um, he, he says you
2: i found out that I liked doing it. It was just yeah. because it was something I liked doing, like occupational therapy. And, yeah, for sure. Um, so the early articles were mostly case studies of people that were really interesting that I had difficulty with. So like there was this one fellow who I met at the psychiatric hospital eight years earlier. And um, I was helping him because he had difficulties leisure activities after he quit his job as. He transported goods in an eighteen-wheel truck, and was involved with truckers on the road, and that was his job. And so he thought he could go fishing by himself, and that would be what he would do in retirement. It sounds, but he was sorely disappointed. So I wound up doing counseling with him about uh, uh, leisure activities, and then um, found him eight years later at a nursing home where I was working. And he was tired. He was biting, scratching, kicking, hitting, punching. They tried to get him dressed. They tried to give him showers every day. And he wound up sitting in his room by himself watching television all day because they were afraid to let him out, mm. interact with other residents at the facility. So I walked into his room. I sat down on his bed. And I said, hey, Joe, you remember me? I met you the uh, the psychiatric hospital. We talked about what you were going to do retirement and how you would be more happy interacting with people and so forth. And he said, oh, I do remember. And I said, so what's going on here? Why are you punching people? Why are you hitting people? You're going to hit me, are you? He said, no, no, you're my friend. And so I used the friend relationship that I had with him to get him out of his room, get him dressing every day, taking showers. And he became the nicest person in the nursing home. I gave him a job like to go around yeah. and make sure when people need to go to the bathroom he goes and flags down and, uh, a nurse's aide and lets them know that so-and-so has to go to the bathroom because you please do that right now. And then he became the greeter at the nursing home so when people would walk in the door he'd find people um, and help them uh, locate their uh, loved ones in their rooms. And he would escort them to the rooms. And so he became the escort and he just, he just developed from there and he became what he used to be. So it was really neat writing an article about how he changed. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. You've had quite the extensive, uh, life experience when it comes to peer reviewed journals, you've been involved in several of them. Tell us a little bit about that process. Like what, what is it like getting involved in the world of journals and, and academic writing?
2: What I learned was that I was good at reviewing articles. And so that made me able to go to non occupational journals participate. In those like diabetes journals, for example. I was working at one point as a managing editor for a, a Korean journal that was in English and was involved with alternative medicine. And so I did that. And I don't know if that learned things. This is the first line
1: that I live journal spot here <laughs> I, I i feel like uh i again being very novice and very green at this i you know I've just now started looking into starting to publish, but like you know what is the difference between like say an editor or an editor in chief or or a reviewer like tell us a little bit about the different
2: roles a reviewer can be anybody who has background on the subject, and so say for example, somebody's written an article about lymphedemia. Mm-hmm. And you don't have anybody on the real board that knows anything about lipidemia. So you have to find the person. Who and sometimes you search the literature and you find somebody that can uh, has done research in lympidemia and you ask them to review the article for you. And that's a good way to start. And so you find people that have knowledge in their base of reviewers that could help with a particular article. And sometimes one person would say yes to an article. Another person says, no, this is horrible. You know, I don't recommend you publish this. Mm-hmm. So then you have to find a third person that says, oh, no, this is a great article. So, and then it gets published.
1: Gotcha. You got to break the tie, right?
2: Right. And you have to make sure that you get quality as mm-hmm. well. And so when Franklin wanted me to get on the Journal of Occupational Therapy International, he asked me to bring you an article. So I did. And it happened to be an article about chairgiving and my mother had been in a very bad accident with a truck when I was a child when I was 16 and she experienced a lot of isolation because many of her friends were no longer best friends because they found out that she couldn't get out of bed. So she made new friends and she had people that empathized with her and so I learned a lot from my mom and I happened to review this article and the answer was for the editor, it's such a good job. I want you to be on my board. So it kind of went from that to more stuff
0: than
2: Yeah, I did. And um, awesome. I found out I was good, a good reviewer. Yeah. And it happened. It, was almost, it almost felt like cheating because I had a lot of experience in that area. And and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who has experience and somebody who doesn't have direct experience in the top of the hand can't do as good of a job as a person who knows about the subject.
1: Yeah. So let's say, you know, you, you've done some journal article reviewing and you're really into it. You love it. You love the journal that you're working with. What then becomes the next jump up to like, say, editor, you know, or like editor in chief or something like that? What it, What does that look like then?
2: an editor, become an associate mm-hmm. editor mm-hmm. some journals have a lot of associate editors and some mm-hmm. just have maybe three. So they look at your publications and they see what you have published about. And, uh, the reason I was hired for the American Journal of Occupational Therapy was because I had been associate editor full of many journals yep. and uh, so And she looked at the quality of my articles and said, "Will you come and work with me, help me on Asia. And I said, sure, kind of how it happened. But those who publish in certain topics become very knowledgeable about the topics. So if you have a topic that you're really passionate about, like I think one of yours is similar to mine, which is service learning. Yeah. And you write articles about service learning. And you can be a reviewer for service learning articles, and that would be niche. You have other niches? You're into rehab. You're also a teacher and teach with service learning. So, if you've written articles about it, then for that,
1: that's awesome. So, tell me a little bit then. Like we've talked about the journal side of things. Like now, let's talk about like the submission side of things, right? You have people that are looking to submit their journals for publication, right? Their articles. What are some tips or tricks or pointers for somebody like myself, maybe who hasn't published yet, and needs to start getting on that publishing train? How do we get started? What are, what are the steps? What should we do? What you know? What What are journal reviewers looking for? Like, how do we make a good paper? Essentially,
2: well, you have to understand the goals of the journals. First. Mm-hmm. You have to look at some of the other papers that are published in that journal that you're looking at. And you have to say, well, this seems like it might be a good fit, so oh, my would that I wrote, Or you could say, this doesn't seem to be a good fit. Let me look for another journal. You also want to look, if you're in the career of education, you want to look at the impact factor.
1: And what does that mean? Tell us a little bit about the impact factor.
2: Um, the impact factor means how many people teach your article in other journals. And impact factor also has to do with uh, how many times your articles are quoted in the literature. Now, one time I was on the board for a member of University which had an allied health article that I wanted to publish. I probably shouldn't have submitted it maybe there because I didn't know about impact factors at that time. I just looked at the fact that I was on the board and I hadn't submitted the paper. This happened to be a study that I did on insulin levels, which went out to 10,000. That was a little bit of a, a top line study. Yeah. And I probably should have put it in, in a journal that sure. had a higher impact. Factor. I wanted to be helpful. And I was very proud of my article and the impact and had all the therapy. So, I just chalked that up to experience. I got my my information out to OTs, speech therapists. I was excited about the allied jump aspect. And I was proud that I had supported the journal.
1: Yeah, I love that. I I, I know, like you said, maybe you could have submitted to a higher impact factor journal. But at the same time, I, I like the fact, too, that you chalked it up to a learning experience, you know, like. Well, I got published. I know the process now. Now I know what I'm looking for. I know how to seek out higher impact journals. You know, I know, you know, what those look like and I know the process. So it wasn't a failure by any means. Right. And and look at all the people that it reached and it helped. So, um, well,
2: another thing I did with that information, which other people might not have let think about, um, is I published my article journal for diabetes I also published it in the Diabetes forecast magazine.
1: Yeah, I think it's important okay. for people to know that, that they can, you know, kind of utilize their, their information in different set, settings and situations and journals, you know. Uh, usually it's not a direct double dip of the same article, but like variations of it and, and different aspects of it a lot of times can, can go in different places. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varellafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast
2: crew sent you.
1: And now, back to the show.
2: Okay, so here's a real good example. This was Diabetes Self-Management Magazine. And that was an article that came directly out of my chomp study, which was about, um, I called it Just for Women, making your insulin pump work for you. And that went in uh, Diabetes Self-Management Magazine. And I, I dumbed it down in terms of I didn't give a whole lot of information that would have been technical information right. that I wouldn't understand, but I found in my study that women were at higher risk, were not doing well in an insulin pump in than men. So I started supporting that with a, a simple article in a magazine. Where this one, uh, diabetes self-management was on preventing falls, and it was the Occupational Therapy Association you who know, referred me to the journal. Well, it's not a journalism, a I don't know what you call it. It's a magazine. They referred me to it to write an article on preventing falls if you've diabetes. And so that was just until I got in touch with the uh, self Management magazine. And this one, RT Practice, is on our paper, basically, or advertising for jobs. It's where a it magazine put out by the American RT Association. This one was on client empowerment cultural sensitivity. And I'd written a cultural article about Hispanics and how their culture affected whether or not they felt that they could manage diabetes. There was a high population of diabetics that were type 2s. And I worked, I did support group research, diabetes. Then I wrote this little article for the magazine that encouraged other people to publish about diabetes. Before that, all we had was articles about tertiary complications like amputations and kidney disease and things like that. And mine was secondary prevention and trying to make sure that they did well with their diabetes. Didn't have complications. So I would do proceedings at conferences and I would do get my seat wet on my presentations and writing backup articles for people that attend the conference. In fact, I even told people, like, you need to have presentations. My first presentation was at the Hawaiian Conference on Education. It was the very first conference they had. And I said, we need proceedings. So they listened to me. And, we yeah. had, and that's been going on for like 25 years.
1: Wow, that's that awesome.
2: And, and they always have proceedings. And I said, we have to have proceedings. That's what we talked about.
1: Well, I guess then my, my next question is really just about, like, the actual writing of, of a journal article, right? Because I was an English major before I became a PT, before I became, uh, you know, an EdD where I started teaching. Right. For me, when I did my dissertation, I thought because I was an English major, I could just write, you know, like, yeah, I'm a good writer. I'll just write. And it was a little too flowery, a little too wordy. Like I really didn't realize that scientific writing was an art form. It was a completely different language. And so I almost had to relearn how to write for scientific purposes, you know? So tell us a little bit about like scientific writing in general and like uh, writing for a publication in a a journal. What What are some of the things that you see with academic writing?
2: At the College of Health Sciences where I worked, we had no missions for clinical laboratory science. We had hardly any PTs that were applying. We had no interest in the occupation therapy. And the dean said, what do we do about this? And I said, let's write a column in the news." So we started a column. I think I called it Help Matters First. That's what it was. Help Matters First. And so I, I, I talked and trained the faculty to write 400-word newspaper column answers. And that is an art. Yeah. Because you have to write it so simply. I used the Fleisch King Word rating in mm-hmm. And were, which told me that I was writing at sixth grade or ninth grade level. Yeah. In the articles, and I had to teach all the faculty how to do that. Yeah. Step down from their academic writing. And it's and- it's
1: wild because that's like layman's terms is what we need to give to our patients. So like we should be able to just do that, and then you have to bring it back up for the academic standards. So it's it's wild the 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 drastic difference.
2: So I'm working with students right now, and in answer to your question, what I've told the two students that I'm working with at the University of St. Augustine and St. Augustine is that they should look to do a scoping for level one, level two, and level three studies. So they are in the process of identifying the best articles in the literature that provide the evidence for mental health. I was doing it in mental health. Another one is doing pre-diabetes, preventing type 2. And they're finding some really interesting top-level articles out of our field. And the whole point of the article is to say, what can do about this? How can we help pre-diabetics manage better and take pre-diabetes seriously so that they don't do diabetes mellitus? So how can we help them with mental health and being interested in going into mental health because very sad to saying that occupational therapy started in mental health, but only two percent of OTs in the country are doing it now as of this year.
1: Mm.
2: So that's dramatic.
1: Yeah, that's that's wild. We're going to have to shift that drastically if we're going to help out the uh, the mental health practitioners out there. That's for sure. Lord knows they need it post COVID.
2: Right. So um, so that's why my student's passion is to to find ways to help OTs to get back into mental health and to realize their capabilities. And they don't even have fieldwork work in mental health in a lot of places, mm. a lot of schools. They just don't have a setting they can send their students to.
1: Yeah. One of the big takeaways for me was just, again, recognizing the difference between uh, layman's terms and kind of bringing it down to that sixth grade reading level and just helping you know the general public understand. So, we're not using too much technical terms and jargon, uh, which we go to school and we learn, you know, 30 to 50,000 new words uh, in a graduate program. And then we just want to go out and show everybody our big new doctoral brains and all the things we know and use big fancy words. When in reality, you're not supposed to be doing that for patients. You need to keep it in layman's terms, keep it easily understandable. But then when you go the other end of the spectrum and you're writing for academic journals and you're writing for healthcare professionals, then you have to elevate the writing again back up to scientific level writing, which is right. interesting because it's short and, and concise and precise, but it also has to be technical and use the language uh, that's expected for the, the field. So it's a it's, dichotomy.
2: I do find that a lot of the articles that are, are submitted digress from the goal to support that doesn't really manage the goal yeah. of what the, the article is all about. And so they have to take out those pieces that yeah. don't belong in there to stay focused. That's stay such, such
1: a good tip right there, because it's not just about what to include. It's about what to exclude as well. I found that that as well. I really have, uh, trying to turn my dissertation into a manuscript. I've, ter- I've had to edit and edit and edit to really get it focused down. That's been tough for an English major. I'm just going to say that.
2: Well, well and I mean, you have to hit the high point.
1: Right, right. But- exactly, right. Uh, If there's no coherence and there's no flow and they don't know what I was talking about, then the article's all for naught anyway, so it doesn't matter.
2: You know how the last sentence in a paragraph should lead to the next paragraph? That's what you have to make sure you do.
1: Yeah, that coherence just from section to section, paragraph to paragraph.
2: Emily, I have one,
1: one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, what aspect would you change and how would you change it?
2: I would make sure that every class, no matter what it is, has service for it so that the students can apply what they're learning directly to a patient. I think yeah. that that's critical for learning the material. For example, during the hurricane zone in Louisiana, I contacted Delta Airlines and I said, I need two free tickets. Can you give them to me? I want to bring students from Louisiana to my site course and have them experience a weekend with these, so that they can understand and develop empathy for what people are going through in that room, displaced to another university, and sleeping in their cars, living on cruise ships. I mean, all kinds of. Things. Yeah. And one day, my department chair decided to bring in clinicians from the community and ask what they. They thought we were doing well in occupational therapy for preparing our students for fieldwork. And one of the comments that stuck in my brain was that they said that more students have more empathy than any students from around the United States. I felt really good about that because I knew that my students had learned what I wanted them to learn. And then they got the top board scores in psychiatry, which is so much there were so many other topics that they covered, And I was, you know, just really proud of the effect of service learning on my students. Yeah, And I think that people need to understand how important it is. And so I would create all kinds of service learning, really sometimes stretching it.
1: You're not going to get any arguments from me here. I mean, uh, based on my dissertation on service-based learning, uh, I'm, I'm a proponent, obviously. And I feel like uh, healthcare, allied health especially, is such a perfect fit for service-based learning because yeah, I could teach you the Berg balance scale on a PowerPoint in the class, or we could go out and do a balance and fall screen for the elderly in the community. The community wins, they get free screenings. I can teach you the Berg balance while we're doing that screen. And it's a win-win for everybody, you know, and it's more hands-on it's experiential learning, which is huge. I think that's so much more important than just, you know, the old lecture style sage on a stage stuff that we've deemed uh, not worthy anymore, right? It just doesn't work. So what are some other ways? What are some better ways that we can do that? And I think it's through service-based learning and experiential learning, you know? The more hands-on, the better.
2: If people have trouble doing that, then they should meet with their colleagues and say, okay, help them figure out what I can do in this class, be service learning that would help my students. What I found was that the more I did that, the more everybody? Did.
1: Yeah, I love that. Lead, lead by example kind of thing, you know. I love that.
2: Can't always think of the right, the right project.
1: Yeah. But If no, you get to
2: feedback from others, you can definitely figure it out.
1: And and surprisingly enough, uh, some universities have full like departments and like people that help with setting up community service type based learning. Things. so that's it's, cool it's just about knowing your resources too you know it's not every university but there are universities out there that have that so like if you're on a, a campus or a university like that that has those resources well then lean into it you know
2: well here, um, here's a here's a good example to end west yeah uh i would send my students to a military base for a service learning within in the ot department there and one year they had a new major and he said, I'm really sorry, but I can't take your students because we have all new people here and I just can't do that. And I said, okay, no problem. So, what, what I did was I started a group called PASS, it stood for Peer Assisted Support um, to Students. And so, I worked with the student health at, on campus. And we started in a support group training program for people in <laughs> engineering and other uh, other that were having difficulties at school, yep. but they didn't know how to manage their stress. So we had students come from all disciplines on the main campus. We were off campus and here we are on the main campus doing service learning training. And, uh, it worked out really well. So we started yep.
1: yep. You hit the nail on the head there. I think, uh, There's plenty of opportunities. Sometimes you just got to look outside the box a little. So Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time and for coming on to share your experience in peer-reviewed journals and and publishing and academic writing. Where can people reach out to you if they have follow-up questions or just want to know more about the uh, journal review process?
2: Well, I'm currently teaching just individual students at University of St. Augustine, that place. Um, My email is given. At USA. I also have Gmail, and that one is Emmy Piven, M M Y P I V E N at Gmail dot com.
1: Perfect. We'll drop those in the show notes so people can find you easily. Thank you so much for doing this for taking your time out. Uh, I've learned a bunch, which I appreciate, and hopefully our audience did as well. And uh, you know, look forward to seeing uh, some of your students' work now in the future.
2: I would really like to work. I would like to help you figure out ways that you and and I might be able to do service learning together with your dissertation. I would love that. Great. And it's so nice to have met you.
1: Yes, likewise. Likewise. I look forward to, like I said, working in the future. So we'll definitely do that. Thanks again.
2: Welcome. My pleasure.
1: Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review, and please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.